Hi, this is Hammy and Whitney, and we're Duke Plastic Surgery residents with The Resident Review, and today we'll be talking about um, nerve compression syndromes. So to get started, obviously, we always begin with a little bit of anatomy. So in regards to specific nerve anatomy, um, there are two fibers that we think about when we think about pain. We think about C fibers for burning pain, and we think about A delta fibers for sharp pain. And that mostly has to do with the myelination of the neurons. Um, and then in regards to uh, sensation, there's Pacinian corpuscles, which detect a vibration in subcutaneous tissues. And... Um, they are sensed by myelinated A-beta fibers. And then there's Meissner's corpuscles, um, and they are located at the intermediate dermal ridge, and they're important for moving two-point discrimination, and they're also A-beta fibers. Then the Merkel cell is important for static two-point discrimination, and it's at the inter interdermal ridge, and it's also A-beta. In regards to nerve injury, um, the Sunderland classification is what we use to determine grades of injuries. So Sunderland class one, it involves neuropraxia that is characterized by segmental demyelination. Two, three, and four are axonomesis with complete and variable recovery. And then Sunderland class five com involves complete transection neuromesis with no recovery. And then Sunderland class six involves a segmental nerve injury. In the study of choice, or in regards to studies, EMG findings occur after three weeks. And then going on to nerve repair. So the way there are different ways that you can re repair nerves. There's the primary repair, and that's for clean lacerations that have less than one centimeters of gap. You can use a conduit, which is used to reinforce a primary repair, or you can also use a conduit if you're unable to perform a primary repair, and that's for nerves with one to three centimeters of a gap. You can use allograft if the gap is three to seven centimeters, um, although we do still get tested on three centimeters as a cutoff, as upper limit of an allograft. And then an autograft if the gap is more than seven centimeters. And of note, age is the best predictor of outcomes for nerve repair. And then in regards to nerve injuries and how they relate to open wounds. So if there's a sharp injury and it's a clean wound, you can repair the nerve immediately. Whereas if it's a crush injury or a gunshot wound, you explore the nerve at the time of the injury. If it appears intact, then assume all neuropathy postoperatively to be neuropraxia. Moving on to compression neuropathy. So what it is, is it's nerve entrapment, and it's a disproportion between volume of nerve and space through which it passes. Now, the pathophysiology of compression neuropathy uh, involves elevated extraneural pressures, which inhibit intraneural microvascular blood flow, which leads to de decreased axonal transport and endoneural edema. This eventually leads to demyelination, distal axon degeneration, and nerve fibrosis. Overall, the degree of axonal injury is proportional to duration and magnitude of compression. In regards to compression pressures, so 30 millimeters of mercury leads to paresthesias. 50 to 60 millimeters of mercury um, leads to complete motor sensory block. Um, and local nerve ischemia prevents depolarization. So in regards to diagnosis, the diagnosis of upper extremity nerve compression is often clinical. However, electrodiagnostic testing is confirmatory. There are two types of testing. There's a nerve conduction study, which measures the strength and velocity of a signal traveling through a nerve. And then there's electromyography, which measures the response of the muscles to the nerve input. 
Thanks so much for that. Um, now we're going to be getting into some of our specific compression neuropathies. And when we're thinking about these in the upper extremity, we're obviously thinking about uh, compression neuropathies of the three major nerves feeding the hand, which are the median ulnar and radial nerves. Just to give you guys an outline of how we're going to review these, we're going to do a bit of an anatomy review of each of the nerves and then go into the compression neuropathies because the anatomy really drives where uh, the nerve gets compressed. So to start, uh, we are going to start with the median nerve in terms of anatomy, um, as it passes in the, we're going to go kind of from upper arm down into the hand for each of the nerves. So in the upper arm, uh, the median nerve arises from the lateral and medial cords of the brachial plexus. It then passes down the medial part of the upper arm with the brachial artery between the biceps muscle and the brachialis. In the forearm, um, it passes into the forearm with the brachial artery under, under the lacertus fibrosis at the um, AC fossa. It then separates from the artery and passes between the two heads of the pronator teres. Distally, it travels between uh, the FDS above and the FBP below, and about five centimeters proximal to the transverse carpal ligament, it becomes more superficial and then passes between the FDS medially and the FCR laterally. It then travels underneath the palmaris longus, if the patient has one, and into the carpal tunnel. Uh, notably, there are several branches of the median nerve, first of which is the AIN or anterior interosseous nerve. This branches proximally and travels within the interosseous membrane between the ulna and the radius. Uh, this provides motor branches to the FDP of the index and little fingers, the FPL and the pronator quadratus. So those branches all come off it within the forearm. Um, we do get asked about injury to the AIN, um, more distally, but keep in mind that the branches to these, uh, muscles. So the branches to the FDP to the little index and little, the FPL and the pronator quadratus, uh, come off more proximally. Uh, the most distal branches of the AIN provide sensory innervation to the wrist capsule and can be cut, um, when doing, um, wrist scopes, et cetera, to prevent continued pain to the wrist capsule. The next branch is a palmar cutaneous branch. It provides sensation to the thenar eminence and branches about five centimeters proximal to the carpal tunnel. The median recurrent motor nerve, this is an important nerve to keep in mind when talking about carpal tunnel release. And we'll get into this a little bit later, but it innervates the thenar muscles, including the APB, the opponent's pollicis, and the superficial belly of the FPB. This nerve typically branches distal to the transverse carpal ligament, but does have a variable anatomy and can branch earlier or even through the transverse carpal ligament. Um, one thing to remember the innervation of the median recurrent motor branch is FOAL. Um, so F-O-A-L. Um, those are the uh, muscles that are innervated by the recurrent median nerve. And that is obviously the FPB, the superficial head, the opponent's pollicis or O abductor pollicis brevis or A and L, which is lateral to lumbricals. In terms of uh, median nerve compression syndromes, uh, the first one that we obviously think about is carpal tunnel syndrome. This is the most common compression neuropathy that we see in patients. The anatomy of the carpal tunnel is important and we do get tested on it. There are nine tendons, the FPL, four tendons of the FDS and four of the FDP that pass through the carpal tunnel in addition to the median nerve. The roof of the carpal tunnel is the transverse carpal ligament. The floor are the radiocarpal ligaments. The borders include the scaphoid and the trapezium radially and the triquetrum and the hamate ulnarly. In terms of patients presenting with carpal tunnel, in general, they complain of intermittent to constant paresthesias in the median nerve distribution. This especially happens at night. 
they oftentimes can complain of pain frequently within those fingers that may even in fact radiate proximally. Uh, they at more severe um, stages can complain of decreased dexterity, weakness, and atrophy of the CNR muscles. Associated symptoms with carpal tunnel include diabetes, hypertension, and pregnancy. As far as staging of carpal tunnel, there is a range of presentations. Um, patients can present with early or mild carpal tunnel, which presents with intermittent paresthesias at night. They can then uh, additionally present with moderate carpal tunnel, which really is just more frequency of uh, their symptoms, especially during the daytime, or present with severe carpal tunnel syndrome, which is constant symptoms of paresthesias within the median nerve distribution, severe pain, theater atrophy, and weakness and pinch. In terms of physical exam, when patients come in, uh, you should test their sensibility over two-point discrimination, um, and you should perform some uh, classic provocative tests. These include the Durkin's test, which is compression of the carpal tunnel leading to symptoms, which is the most sensitive and specific. Thalens, which is wrist flexion leading to symptoms, and a Tinel's, which is tapping on the nerve distal to the proxi- distal to proximal leading to symptoms. Other tests that can confirm carpal tunnel syndrome are an EMG. Um, which will demonstrate abnormal nerve latency of greater than four milliseconds on nerve conduction. Um, You can also get a diagnostic ultrasound. This looks at transverse images of the median nerve as it passes through the transverse carpal, underneath the transverse carpal ligament. It takes the ratio of the median nerve prior to the carpal tunnel and within the carpal tunnel. And if the uh, nerve is enlarged at the carpal tunnel, it suggests compression at this location. In terms of treatment for carpal tunnel, there are uh, two major treatment modalities. One is non-operative, and that's generally where you start for mild carpal tunnel syndrome. Non-operative therapy, the mainstays are nighttime splints, keeping the wrist in neutral position and steroid injections. So uh, for steroid injections, you oftentimes can use these uh, to... Uh, help patients who have mild carpal tunnel. And in fact, about 35% of patients with mild carpal tunnel will not need um, surgery immediately if they have night splints and uh, corticosteroid injection. However, in patients with moderate to severe carpal tunnel, uh, corticosteroid injections will not provide long-term relief and are can generally just be used as a diagnostic test. So if the patient gets better with an injection of corticosteroids into the carpal tunnel, um, that suggests that carpal tunnel release will help them. Uh, obviously, the second mainstay of treatment is surgery. There are two types or techniques used to release the carpal tunnel. The first is an open carpal tunnel release. Um, and the second is an endoscopic carpal tunnel release. Uh, the open technique for carpal tunnel, uh, versus the endoscopic technique for carpal tunnel has been shown to have uh, very similar outcomes in terms of relief of carpal tunnel symptoms. Um, however, patients that undergo endoscopic carpal tunnel release tend to have a shorter recovery time given the smaller incisions. As far as postoperative care, splints and rehab are not generally necessary unless uh, patients have been or muscle weakness, in which case you can send them to OT for uh, therapy. And uh, antibiotics are generally not indicated pre or postoperatively unless the patient has diabetes or, is, or is immunocompromised. As far as complications of carpal tunnel release go, um, the major one is an incomplete release or that you didn't fully release the carpal tunnel. So patients have persistent symptoms. There's also a risk of damage to the palmar cutaneous branch as you release the carpal tunnel uh, proximally. So um, there's a uh, further uh, risk of hypertrophic painful scar, bowstringing of the tendons now that the carpal tunnel has been released and CRPS or um, complex regional pain syndrome, which we'll get into a little bit more at the end. In terms of revision carpal tunnel release, 
this refers to kind of two distinct patient populations. The first of which is patients who have had an incomplete release and therefore have persistent symptoms. And the second of which um, relate to patients who have had relief initially from a carpal tunnel release, but have developed recurrent symptoms. In the first group, uh, these patients generally just had an incomplete release at their initial surgery and generally just have to have a second release to make sure that their carpal tunnel is fully released and their median nerve is not compressed anymore. In the second group, um, this group of patients generally redevelops symptoms of carpal tunnel due to scarring of one of the leaflets of the transverse carpal ligament to the median nerve and adjunctive procedures such as a hypothene or fat pad, radial forearm, fascial flap, radial artery perforator flap have all been used to prevent re-scarring of the transverse carpal ligament to the median nerve. Just a side note, on carpal tunnel, um, acute carpal tunnel is a slightly different, um, slightly different presentation than chronic carpal tunnel. It often occurs after fracture, um, especially with uh, perigalunate dislocations or due to a pyogenic infection. Acute carpal tunnel requires urgent release um, of the carpal tunnel to prevent long-term damage to the nerve. And in this situation, a delay of even up to 36 hours actually may result in a poor prognosis and permanent damage to the median nerve. Moving on from carpal tunnel, uh, we are going to next talk about AIN or anterior interosseous nerve compression. Uh, this is the second most common nerve compression related to the median nerve. Uh, the anatomy is the AIN is mainly a motor nerve that branches proximally uh, from the median nerve itself. It is, um, divides from the median nerve about four to six centimeters distal to the elbow and passes between the two heads of the pronator teres and then into the interosseous membrane. It obviously, as I said before, gives off branches that innervate the FDP of the index and small, the FPL and the pronator quadratus. In terms of sites of compression, there are several places that the median or that the AIN can be compressed along its course. It most commonly gets compressed at the deep head of the pronator teres, along the edge of the Lacerda's fibrosis or the FDS arcade. In terms of symptoms of compression of the AIN, um, in general, patients present with motor loss without any sensory involvement, and that's what distinguishes it from carpal tunnel syndrome. Uh, in general, patients have an inability to perform an okay sign due to the loss of the FPL. Uh, the surgery for AIN compression is release of the Lacerda's fibrosis, release of the pronator teres, and release of the FDP fibrous arch, because um, those are generally the three most common places that the AIN gets compressed. Uh, finally, we're going to talk about pronator syndrome. Uh, this is the final nerve compression syndrome related to the median nerve. The anatomy of pronator syndrome is compression of the median nerve, not just the AIN. Um, so it is a compression of the median nerve more proximal to the AIN takeoff. The sites of compression, again, are the Lacerda's fibrosis, the pronator teres, the arch of the FDS. Um, it can also be entrapped between, beneath the ligament of struthers between the supracondylar process of the distal humerus and the fascia of the pronator teres. The presentation of pronator syndrome is pain at the proximal forearm with or without weakness and paresthesias in the median nerve distribution. Notably, this includes the thenar eminence, and that's what distinguishes it from carpal tunnel syndrome, uh, because there is also compression of the palmar cutaneous branch, which is not included in carpal tunnel syndrome. Uh, physical exam uh, distinguishes pronator teres as it snells over the pronator teres and muscular weakness within the distribution of the median nerve. Uh, the diagnosis is generally clinical, given the fact that EMG and nerve conduction studies are pretty much generally normal. And the treatment for pronator syndrome is uh, generally non-operative with splinting and activity modification. 
However, if patients have severe pronator syndrome, uh, they can undergo surgery with release of the ligament of struthers, um, the lacerdus fibrosis, the fascia of the superhead of the pronator arch um, of the proximal FDS. And in general, patients that do have pronator teres uh, have about 90% success at relief with surgery. Thank you, Whitney. Um, we're going to move on to the ulnar nerve, which is a little bit less involved in the median nerve. The median nerve is a little bit of a beast, um, but we'll begin with some anatomy. So the ulnar nerve begins as a terminal branch of the medial cord of the brachial plexus. Um, in the upper arm, the ulnar nerve runs ulnar and volar to the ulnar artery. Um, in the elbow, the ulnar nerve is covered by the arcade of struthers, eight centimeters proximal to the medial epicondyle. The nerve passes through the cubital tunnel and is then covered by the FCU tendon. In the forearm, the ulnar nerve lies on top of the FDP. The FDS lies on top of the nerve. And in the wrist, the nerve tracks radial to the FCU tendon and ulnar to the hook of the hamate to enter Guillain's canal. In regards to branches of the ulnar nerve, um, before the wrist, motor branches innervate the FDS of the ring and small fingers and FCU. The dorsal cutaneous nerve, which gives off sensation to the dorsal ulnar hand, is five to seven centimeters proximal to the ulnar styloid. The palmar cutaneous branch gives sensation to the palmar ulnar hand and comes off proximal to the wrist. Now, after the wrist, there's a deep motor branch. This innervates the hypothenar muscles, adductor muscles, intrinsics, and thenar, which is the deep head of the FBB. Then there's a superficial sensory nerve, which gives sensation to the common and proper digital nerve for the ulnar digits. Now, going on to pathology, uh, specifically ulnar nerve compression. So, for cubital tunnel syndrome, uh, in regards to potential sites of compression, there's the arcade of struthers, there's the medial intramuscular septum, the medial epicondyle, the cubital tunnel, specifically Osborne's ligament, or the fibrous band between the two heads of the FCU. There's the triceps, there's the enconius epitrochlearis, epitrochlearis, all right, I'm going to redo that, enconius epitrochlearis. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then moving on, so the presentation of cubital tunnel syndrome. Early presentation is intermittent paresthesias in the ulnar two digits, extrinsic, intrinsic motor weakness, and the FDP to the ring in the small. Late symptoms include Fremet's sign, which is an inability to activate the adductor pollicis leading to weakness and pinch. And, there's, and then there's the Wardenberg sign, which is clawing of the hand. Um, the cubital tunnel should have some sensory loss on, dorsip, on the dorsum of the hand, which differentiates from Guyon's canal compression. For physical exam, um, you do provocative testing. And you find tunnels at the elbow, and then you can also do something called an elbow flexion test. Other physical exam findings include atrophy and decreased motor strength, as with most kind of nerve compressions. Treatment, you have your non-operative. You put the elbow splint and you put on an elbow splint at 45 degrees of extension and um, ulnar nerve glides. In regards to operative treatment, there's in situ decompression, there's anterior transposition, and then there's medial epicondylectomy, and none are superior to the other. For in situ decompression, it's safe and simple. It releases the sites of compression only and does not change its position. Um, do not perform this if the nerve subluxates. In regards to transposition, this is for severe ulnar neuropathy and the failure of in situ. Um, and you can also do this in throwing athletes in cases of angular deformities or, again, subluxation of the nerve. You must remove some medial intramuscular septum if you transpose. Now, complications. Complications include elbow flexion contracture, medial epicondylitis, um, neuroma of the MABCN, elbow instability, 
and pers persistent motor sensory deficits, as well as just a failed decompression. The MABC can be injured during ulnar nerve neuroplasty and is best identified and corrected by excision of neuroma and nerve stump implantation. Now, moving on to our next syndrome, which is um, ulnar tunnel syndrome, aka Guillain's canal syndrome, and it presents with numbness paresthesias in the palmar aspect of the ring and small fingers, and it is not dorsal. Um, it also presents with weakness and atrophy in the ulnar intrinsics. Areas of compression, as the ulnar nerve passes through Guillain's canal, it can be compressed in three places leading to specific presenting symptoms. So number one, proximal to the ulnar nerve bifurcation, and this presents usually with both censoring and motor loss. Number two, if the ulnar nerve deep motor branch as it passes through the hook of the hamate, this is usually an isolated motor finding, and it's normally due to a ganglion cyst. And number three, proximal to the bifurcation of the ulnar nerve, normally sensory only for ulnar artery thrombosis. And so causes of compression include the palmaris brevis, a fibrous origin of the FDM, an ulnar artery aneurysm or thrombosis, a hook of a hamate fracture, and a ganglion cyst, which is most common. Evaluation includes x-rays with carpal tunnel view to evaluate the hook of the hamate, CT or MRI, as well as EMG and NCV. Treatment includes, so conservative treatment includes splinting if it is due to repetitive trauma without a mass or other cause of compression. And then you can also do surgery for a refractory or an identifiable cause. So now moving on to the final of the nerves uh, that can get compressed on the way to the hand, um, the radial nerve, which I guess is the least commonly compressed nerve of the three. Um, again, we're going to start with a bit of an anatomy review. So the radial nerve is the terminal branch of the posterior cord of the brachial plexus. It runs posterior to the brachial artery and anterior to the triceps. It transects the lateral intramuscular septum with the radiocollateral artery about 10 centimeters proximal to the distal humerus and then runs between the brachialis um, and the brachioradialis. Within the forearm, the nerve divides into a superficial and deep branch. The deep branch is the posterior interosseous nerve and the superficial branch is the uh, called the superficial branch of the radial nerve. Not very inventive. Um, the PIN or the posterior interosseous nerve passes under the arcade of Froch, splitting the supinator muscle, and then travels within the fourth extensor compartment to innervate the extensors, including the ECU, the EDM, the EDC, and the EIP, which is most distal. It also innervates the EPL, EPB, and APL and terminates under the fourth extensor compartment to innervate the wrist capsule. So it's very distal extent is a sim simply sensory nerve to the wrist capsule. The superficial branch of the radial nerve uh, branches or travels between the brachioradialis and the ECRL. In the mid forearm, it runs between the brachioradialis and becomes subcutaneous about eight to nine centimeters proximal to the radial styloid. It provides sensation to the dorsal radial aspect of the hand. As far as nerve compressions, the first of which is the, it's called radial tunnel syndrome. Its presentation is pain during movement of the elbow radiating distally along with weakness of grip due to repetitive elbow extension and rotation. The points of compression in radial uh, tunnel syndrome are fibrous bands, um, the ECRB, the proximal supinator, which is most common, the distal supinator, and the arcade of Froch. Um, which can lead to exclusively PIN entrapment. Diagnosis of radial tunnel is pain over the ECRB during forced extension of the middle finger while the elbow is in extension. A radial nerve block can be diagnostic and an EMG is typically unfortunately not helpful. Treatment for radial tunnel syndrome is 
generally conservative with NSAIDs, arresting splint and activity mod- modification, because surgery uh, really only provides relief in about 50% of cases. Uh, the next nerve compression is PIN syndrome. Uh, patients present with PIN syndrome with weakness and some pain during uh, finger and wrist extension without significant sensory loss. The differential diagnosis includes rheumatoid arthritis with tendon rupture of the extensors. The areas of compression generally are entrapment at the elbow, masses, including ganglions, uh, lipomas, and uh, bursitis. Uh, You can also have the PIN entrapped due to radial head dislocation, and you can also have traction neuropraxia from something like a tourniquet on the forearm. The diagnosis of PIN syndrome is an X-ray to rule out radial head dislocation, an EMG, and ultrasound to evaluate for soft tissue masses compressing the nerve. Treatment is uh, generally initially conservative with 8 to 12 weeks of activity modification, splints, and steroids. Um, If patients don't get better with conservative treatment, you can proceed to surgery to address areas of potential compression, including the radiocapitellar joint, the leash of Henry, um, the ECRB lateral head and the arcade of Roche. Finally, uh, patients can present with something called Wartenberg syndrome. This is a compression of the superficial branch of the radial nerve. Um, it generally present patients generally present with pain and numbness at the dorsal radial aspect of the distal forearm and hand. Um, in general, the cause is superficial radial nerve entrapment at the point where it exits from the brachioradialis fascia. And this can be due to external compression, such as jewelry or uh, the, your sleeve being rolled up and compressing that area, um, or compression from the brachioradialis and ECRL with pronation of the forearm. Provocative tests include a tenels over the forearm and pain with pronation. Treatment is generally conservative with uh, activity modification not wearing jewelry in that location and providing a corticosteroid injection to reduce inflammation. Um, however, if patients don't get, again, get better with conservative therapy, we can proceed to surgery, uh, which is about 80 to 85% successful. You essentially release the deep fascia around the nerve and perform a de Quervain's release of the uh, first dorsal compartment. To finish off our conversation, like I said, we were going to talk a little bit more about CRPS or complex regional pain syndrome. This is a relatively uncommon complication of carpal tunnel release or kind of like any nerve release within uh, the upper extremity. Um, It is defined as a reflex sympathetic dystrophy, um, which leads to a complex pain syndrome associated with stiffness, swelling, discoloration of the hand, hyperhidrosis, and um, even osteoporosis over the long term. Bone scans can be helpful um, in the diagnosis of CRPS. As far as treatment, it's generally um, it's generally symptomatic treatment, so uh, nerve modification or, or neuro, neuro, neuropathy medicines are generally used to treat CRPS. However, um, CRPS can also be treated with ascorbic acid or vitamin C. Um, additionally, stellate ganglion blocks have been used to reduce sympathetic tone to improve CRPS symptoms. And something to note is that C-sensory fibers are responsible for CRPS, or at least thought to be responsible for CRPS. Um, so with that, that concludes our run through of the nerve compression syndromes of the upper extremity. Stay tuned for our follow-up episode on the brachial plexus and nerve transfers to get a full look at the nerves of the upper extremity. Thanks so much. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. 
Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.